This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Good day, podcast listener. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to rank all seven Mission Impossible films from best to worst by the end of this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, Unspooled. Wow, I was waiting for you to get my back there, Amy. (laughs) I'm sorry, man. Your mission has been compromised. Oh, my gosh. I am Paul Shear. That voice right there is my partner, Amy Nicholson, uh, a frequent writer for The New York Times. We love talking about movies, and we've done these episodes in the past where we dissect an entire franchise, to look at a franchise instead of just a great film, to determine, is that franchise worthy of being sent into space? And we've talked about Star Trek in the past. We've also talked about Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. But today, we're going to focus on Mission Impossible, a franchise that has been around for a very long time. Very, 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 very long time. And yet, it gets older, and its lead just keeps jumping off cliffs. How exciting. And, you know, this is not a conversation that I feel like a two-person squad can handle. No way. I feel like we need a four-person squad. We need and a I team. Feel like we need a team. We need a team of specialists. Now, usually I like to sit here and be like, I am the Tom Cruise specialist. But you know what? There's somebody, there's two buddies who I think are even better at getting under the wires of this specific franchise. Are you going to introduce our team members or am I? I will introduce one. You can introduce the other. These two gentlemen host a podcast called Light the Fuse. It is a deep dive into the Mission Impossible franchise in every way. We'll get into that in a second. But today we'll be talking with Drew Taylor, who's a reporter for The Wrap. He's written for The New York Times, Vulture, Vanity Fair, and The Playlist and Collider. And he really, really is someone who is very passionate about all things Mission Impossible. And 
the only person who can keep pace with this man is Charles Hood. Charles Hood, he is a writer and director himself. He directed and co-wrote the film Night Owls. He had also directed the very, very, very dark comedy called A Nasty Piece of Work, which is part of the Blumhouse universe. And this man is willing to do the dirty work of finding out truth in the Mission Impossible franchise. He tells a story here that's kind of a computer hacking story that I found very impressive. We'll be doing a deep dive with these two gentlemen. We'll be talking about lost Mission Impossible scripts, different sorts of casting, and then really hone down on our ranking of these films. Which is the best? Which is the worst? We all have different opinions. Some similarities, but a lot of different opinions. At the end, we challenge you to make your own list and share it with us. Um, I was impressed by how much ground we covered. And we do spend a lot of time breaking down what makes the first film so iconic. Because I do believe that that film puts the DNA of this entire franchise in action. So, Amy, without any further ado, let's light the fuse. Which, in the Mission Impossible world, means unspooling. Drew, Charles, welcome to Unspooled. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to discuss the Mission Impossible franchise with us. Given your prestige as cruise scholars, cruise enthusiasts, I don't know the the cruisian noun you apply to yourself. Yeah, I think we're enthusiasts. I think we're Confederates now. I think we're we're you know we're we're out there. We're mixing it up with cruise. We're getting the cake. Yeah, you got the, the cake. cake? List. <gasps> yeah. Oh, it's a good cake. It's, it's so a great good. cake. Paul gave Very me the cake rich. for my birthday, and I have never felt more like seen and appreciated by anybody when it comes to dessert. <laughs> Here is what I will say about the cake. If you don't know this, Tom Cruise is known for, at Christmas time, giving out this coconut cake from a local bakery here in Los Angeles that is as good as you could possibly imagine a coconut cake to be, even if you don't like coconut. And that's what most people say. I don't like coconut cake. Or and white this, chocolate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, it's coconut and white chocolate, neither of which I like. And it's incredible. Well, yeah. coconut and white chocolate are two of my three favorite flavors. The third is raspberry. So it's my dream cake. It's my ultimate <laughs> cake. And the only problem with it is like one bite of that cake is probably your entire calorie count for an entire day. <laughs> but you it's give it the rich. holiday time. It's a great time. You oh, can yeah. always get yes. it. Just to make sure that everyone knows, uh, it is from a bakery called Dones, uh, D-O. A-N-S. Uh, and you can order it. You can get it. You, if you want to try the Tom Cruise cake, you you know, you can write yourself a fake letter from Tom uh, and you can get the full experience. But I feel obligated to point out one thing. I know this is the Tom Cruise cake, but the true history of the cake is that it was actually discovered by Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton brought the cake when she was doing, I think, the movie Mad Money with Katie Holmes, which was Whoa. terrible. And it was on the set of Mad Money that Cruise tried the cake and basically... He was like that friend who's like, oh, that's your favorite band? They're my favorite band now, and I'm going to become known for that being my favorite band and take away wow. my identity. That's what he did to Diane Keaton. That was her I thought this cake. cake was like an 80s cake. I didn't realize this came in Katie Holmes era Tom Cruise. I mean, which is now ancient history, but it's very raw to Diane Keaton. I have to say that I'm a fan of your show. I'm a fan of you as people, but your show, when I first heard the premise it made me laugh because it's like, wait, this is an entire show around the Mission Impossible films, right? This is, and it's, 
talking to actors. You're talking to sound designers. You're talking about scripts that weren't even shot, producers. Like, there has never been a more thorough investigation of a franchise that is currently living. Like, you are creating a real-life, true history of this franchise, and it is fun to listen to, but I'm also amazed at how you keep on finding new ways to explore these movies and find more and more interesting people, things that I may not think I would even be interested in, like to listen to a stunt coordinator or a sound design person or how the themes come together. Like, But you make each one of these things seem like the most important element of the movie. And every episode, I'm just like, ooh, ah, ah. I'm just, uh, I'm just <laughs> totally caught up. And when Tom Cruise eventually came on the show, I think that was episode 200, right? Yes. Yeah. I was jumping out of my seat when Tom Cruise came on because it was, I don't even feel like I hear Tom Cruise on pod. I don't even know if he knows what a podcast is. Like for him to call in. He does now. I know. It just goes to show you that it's gotten so much respect within the actual franchise, the makers of it. Obviously you've had great conversations uh, with many directors across the board over the seven films. But I feel like this group, this creative team, of, uh, was it five, six, and seven really have embraced you and what you're doing. The show wouldn't be what it is without them and the, them embracing us. I mean, Lauren Balf, the composer of uh, Fallout and Dead Reckoning Part One, he was our first guest. And and getting him then led to us getting the editor, Eddie Hamilton, who's a, one of our another one of our favorite people in the world, which then led us to get McCory. And that's what got us started as being like, oh, I guess we're an interview show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Lauren Balf, by the way, I have to say, I believe Lauren Balfe's theme to maybe be, well, I'm just going to say it, it is my favorite. I, I think that Wait, from which, to, which movie? Fallout or Dead Reckoning oh, Part 1? Well, no, Fallout is where I'm like, there's something about his score for these movies that I feel like really work great. Balfe has done something extraordinary in my mind. I, I feel like he really nailed it. I think he took everything and, and put it all together. Well, if, you, if we really want to get in the weeds here for a second too, the version of Lauren's Mission Impossible theme that is my favorite is the end credits, the curtain call at the end of Fallout, Mission mm. Accomplished, when he he was the first one to bring in choral elements. Like there's a choir that's singing in it oh, as well. It's I just, love it. It's amazing. So great. But I do want to know, you know, starting off as fans, just making this podcast, I don't think you probably thought it was going to go this far. I don't think you thought it was going to be the official Paramount podcast of... <laughs> Mission Impossible. You have a wealth of great material. And I feel like even in conversations with you, I'm like, oh, I have to go back and listen to that one if I miss that one. Is there anything that that jumps out that you want to just kind of point people in the direction of things that you've learned about the franchise? Anything at all? What what should we be knowing about this franchise? Well, I think for, especially for the purposes of this ep- great episode of Unspooled, which I'm sure will mm. be the most popular one that Always. has ever come out. I'm yeah. sure. Um, that They should listen to our conversation with Brian De Palma, which is an absolute riot. Because he has this persona. He's very gruff. You know, we wear him down over the course of the two episodes. We ingratiate <laughs> ourselves. We we really appeal to his better half. And I think that is a wonderful <laughs> couple of episodes. And all the episodes we did with Paul Hirsch, who yes. edited the first movie and also Ghost Protocol. I mean, he is literally like a walking film school and... Paul, I don't know if you read his book, but it is wonderful. It is on my list because it seems to be the go-to book. I mean, he edited so many amazing things yeah. and worked with so many amazing people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am blown away. I also want to call attention to the fact that you also 
did like a deep dive into Robert Towns' draft of Mission Impossible because uh, yes. <laughs> Robert Towns was brought in at a certain point. <laughs> okay, so part of what we love to do on our show is to, like you've said before, is we interview anyone who's worked on any of these movies. So if it's someone who did craft services or someone who did sound or whatever they were, the production designers, costume designers, any anybody who's worked on these movies, we just love to celebrate the artistry of these movies on every level. And we had the first AD on the show. And, and uh, you know, the first AD, Chris Soldo, talked to us about the behind the scenes of, you know, he working with Brian De Palma on a bunch of movies. And he had on a disc, like an old disc from 1995, like not a floppy disc, but the like hard discs, you know? Wow. The like square, like, you know, with, I don't yeah, even know, yeah, yeah. I, like D-I-S-K disc. And he showed, I think he showed it to us in the Zoom when we talked to him. He's like, oh, I've got this disc. And on the disc, on the label, it says like Robert Town draft and it had a date on it. And he's like, yeah, I don't know how to get this off of here, but if I ever do, I'll get it to you. And so I think it, I, I, hounded, I just kept messaging him after we had him on the show for like months and months. Like, hey, have you ever got a chance to get that disc going? Like, I don't know. And he finally, he finally got it transferred into a format that was like completely almost unreadable. He like he sent it to us, and within all of the gobbledygook and gibberish, there, you could see oh, there's elements of the script in here. It was like a notepad document or whatever, and I had to go through and sift through all the gunk and just like edit and delete and manually make it look like a screenplay which took a long time <laughs> <laughs> and then we had so then i was able to make like a pdf of a screenplay an approximation of what the robert town script looked like and then we had a conversation and actually we reread excerpts from it and in, in the episode about it and so robert town came on and did a, 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 his draft after david kept came on but then right before production they brought david kept back and we had D david kept on the show and he told us this whole process of what happened and david kept came back and he had to take all the best elements of robert town's draft and all the best elements of his earlier drafts and put it together into one script like all in a weekend before the, the movie started i just have to say a couple things right now which is a that kind of D-I-S-C was like outdated even in this movie. He like cruises lowering <laughs> down to copy this knock list on an actual like CD. So yeah. wow. Wow. But also I have to jump back and just say that you got De Palma to talk about Mission Impossible is amazing because when this movie came out in 1996, he didn't even want to do a lot of interviews about it then because there was like some tension about how he was like, I can't believe that this actor guy gave me the biggest directorial budget I've ever gotten to work with in my entire life, and he's bossing me around, and I can't do everything I wish I could do. The amazing thing about talking to De Palma, we never released the video, but you could see, like Drew said, we we slowly he slowly softens through the hour of us speaking to him. It starts with him. It was him with his partner, their creative partner, and they uh, they had written a book together, and that's how we got him on the show. We were like, please come on the show, and uh, and uh, you can promote your book. We can talk about your book, which we loved. And he came on and he's sitting there with her and he's just laid back, like not engaged at all. But slowly as the hour went on, his chair kind of creeps forward more and more <laughs> until the point where he finally even took the laptop and tilted it toward himself and was like fully <laughs> consuming the screen. Like the, it was him. He was totally engaged and totally like it was like we, we slowly won him over with like wow. our knowledge of the movies and his career and stuff. It was great. Can I ask what he was wearing? <laughs> I don't remember what he was Probably 
I don't know if it was his, his, yeah, his safari jacket or anything, but. Yeah, the one time I interviewed him, which was like at a Le Pen Cotidian in New York for some reason, he was wearing the safari jacket in the middle of the day. And I was like, what is happening? I didn't know if he just wore that every single day. I think he needs those pockets. He yeah. really needs those pockets. <laughs> By the way, as a director, you do need those pockets. I feel yeah. like back, that's why we have fanny packs and stuff. I love the documentary that A24 did that Noah Bombeck did with him because Mission Impossible 1 was a flawed script at some point, like in the beginning process of it. And the real thing that he was talking about in that A24 documentary, I remember it was saying like, I need Tom Cruise to sign off on this so we can actually start making this. And as soon as they signed off on it, they brought in Robert Town. Like they were, It was like this idea that it feels to me that he was very much a part of a bigger machine where maybe he wasn't as in control as he's used to being. And that's kind of the friction. I don't know. I mean, it didn't seem like he was angry or that that narrative didn't seem to hold true in your show that he was like angry at it. No, we didn't get that impression. I mean, he was not he was also not the first choice for director on this that Sidney Pollack had briefly developed it. I've heard him say, you know, recently that kind of the one-two punch of Carlito's Way and Mission Impossible was really the peak both of him as a filmmaker, but also in terms of the resources that he was given. That that kind of <laughs> represented him sort of at the height of his powers, marshalling his forces in a way that he had never gotten to do before or since. He, you know, he had to make like some shitty movie in like Europe recently. I'm sure he looks back very fondly on oh, being yeah. able to. <laughs> well, I guess the question is too, like, this is also a franchise that might not have gotten a sequel. Like, it didn't feel to me like Mission Impossible 2 was a sure thing, right? Because it, Or is that my perspective of it? No, you're six, right about that. Yeah. I mean, again, we had this insane episode where Charles found an early draft of 2 that was going to be directed by Oliver Stone. And yes. so then we dramatized that story on air and the one that we're obsessed with is the the David Fincher version of 3 which would have been yes. about ar- organ harvesting in Africa. I mean that is something that, that with a script that <laughs> Frank Darabont wrote. I mean like can you just imagine that? I mean that would have just been so cool. What you're describing yeah. is you're describing to me what I absolutely love about the first half of the Mission Impossible franchise, which is that like Cruz comes to this with this idea of I'm going to hire different directors for each one of these and let Ethan Hunt become kind of just moldable to everybody's different version of who this character should be. You know, that the Ethan Hunt we see in Mission Impossible 1 is not that similar to the Ethan Hunt of 2, who's like a crazed Lothario hitting on women and tango dancing in slow motion. <laughs> like, he's very different from 3, where we learned his middle name is Matthew and he has a dog. You're like, who is this guy? And like, that's what I loved about this character. And I will say to me that I see it as like a before and after. Like, there's the Mission Impossibles 1, 2, 3, 4. And then there's everything after that where he's kind of locked more into like a narrative only in the Macquarie world. And I love the daffiness that you're describing, the fincher of it all. Well, we love that dog, and I'm glad you brought that dog up. We're really concerned about what happened to <laughs> yes. the dog. Because yeah, I don't wonder. see Michelle Monaghan with that dog. When you know no. she's she's overseas doing all this yeah. work. Who yeah. took care of that dog? Well, we yeah, know that he... Ethan faked Julia's death, his ex-wife, but did he fake the dog's death too? Where did the dog go? Maybe <laughs> we when think that the dog. Aaron Paul. Where, yeah, Aaron uh, Paul. Played, 
played yes. her brother in that. So maybe Aaron Paul got the dog, but he also doesn't seem like a very reliable character. So I'm worried about the dog. Well, do you think that if Tom Cruise came up to you and made his really intense Tom Cruise eye contact and said, the dog is living a happy life on the farm, you would believe him? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, once you yes. get locked into that eye contact, you would yes. believe anything. Yeah. yeah. We would argue, though, that, that there are ver- different versions of Ethan within the Macquarie-verse. Okay, I'd love to I'm hear hoping. about this. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. His whole thing is is that he wants to be a different director each time as well. So I feel like there are variations on Ethan within those Macquarie installments. I would say especially Dead Reckoning Part 1. I mean, yes. he's completely reconceived the Ethan character and the IMF. I mean, it's like a completely different... To me, I, I look at it, I'm almost... I like I, I watch it, I'm like, there's so many nods to the earlier movies, but at the same time, it's almost... It's really a standalone movie. It doesn't really fit in with the context of the stories of the other ones, in a way. Like with the whole new uh, girlfriend that we're seeing in the past and all of that? Yeah. The that whole and, 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 and also the, the oath. The, yeah, the, the, oath, the, the whole oath, oath yeah. that they take and and that they're, they were all criminals before they joined the IMF. It's like, did anybody ever watch any of these movies before and think, oh, Ethan was a criminal before he joined the IMF or Luther and Benji were criminals? Like, no, not at all. It's like a whole completely new spin on it. Yeah, but like the Ethan Hunt that we see in the first movie, he's, you know, the cocky Cruise character that we sort of imagine from this period, but not, he doesn't seem like a villain. Wait, he's got like a leather jacket and he's right. like, Complaining that he wants cappuccino. Yeah, he's got the military haircut. We we always thought that he kind of just got recruited from his military service, or maybe yeah. he was in military intelligence, and you know that's how he came over. But it seemed to me like a special branch of the CIA, like this idea that it's a a level up. It's like a special forces branch, right? And to now add this other element that they are all bad guys is really interesting. I do want to just go back and just hit that Macquarie thing really quickly too. What I love about Macquarie and the way that he approaches this is like he really doesn't have things that he falls back on. Like he was talking about this um, on one of the interviews I've read or heard where he was saying like that kind of stuff. And I'll use in a not to minimize uh, anybody, but Wes Anderson, right? You can see that's a Wes Anderson movie. And in Macquarie's mind, that's shtick. Like he's like, that's shtick. I don't do shtick. I look at a movie and I create my own new palette for each one. So he doesn't want to fall back on something. He wants to challenge himself. And I do think the reason why he's stuck around the franchise, I think that him and Tom Cruise really work on this like kind of improvisational movie making way. They both are so malleable so much so that when you hear a story like, Oh, Vanessa Kirby came in and she did something on her coverage that made us change the Ethan character completely after take one. You're like, Oh, Wow, like, okay, <laughs> like, you know, they seem so, like, to a point, maybe too malleable. I don't know, but it just feels like they are willing to go with, like, it's not like replacing an actor. It's like the part is built around the actor. We've gotten to learn a lot about that process over 250 episodes, and it seems <laughs> like you really have to, you really have to be game to do it. And and even, you know, like Charles was saying, the conception of the IMF is so different you know, like that scene with all the intelligence people and the fact that they figured out that it was actually a ghost story they were telling. Like you look at three and it's 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 an office building, you know, somewhere. I yeah, mean, it's like kind it's of a secret alias. hideout or whatever. Right. It's alias. And by seven, it's kind of this mystical, you know, yeah. quasi supernatural realm where you put a feeler out for somebody and they'll come to your aid. You know, it's it's really interesting. It is because I have to say, I like the lack of glamour in the first one a lot. You know, they're complaining about 
having to drink shit coffee in a barn in Kiev. It, like the idea that like, this is just a job. I really appreciate because if I like the lack of slickness, you know, there's almost like the economic element in the first one where they're aware that Phelps gets to stay at nice hotels while they're sleeping in barns in Kiev. And like kind of tension. Like you don't feel like the most of these IMF guys are slick, have expensive suits, are getting like all the gadgets. I mean, they're working with like gum. They're not working with like. Well, Amy, <laughs> that's exploding gum. And you see how <laughs> well, that. Yeah, but it's exploding gum. It's not like, I don't know, laser cannons or something. When I came on your show, I really was down on Mission Impossible 1. I don't know why. I feel like I saw it in 1996, and I really didn't revisit it too much afterwards. I started to really fall in love with the franchise at 3. I was a huge Alias fan, and I really looked at the franchise from, you know, 3 forward. I didn't appreciate it that much. And going back after 7, I rewatched all of them within the last month. And I have to say... The DNA of this franchise, no matter how much it changes, is really all set in that first movie. And I was incredibly impressed by its style, but also tonally, the movies, it really does set the tone. Like, I feel like I do believe that the Mission Impossibles that we're seeing now that people love are more similar to number one and what number one really did. I, I've I've gotten a great appreciation for it. And when I look at the, how do I judge them? I am looking at it in that way where I'm like, it wasn't something that you had to reboot. It was all there. And even the character of Ethan Hunt, like you watch him grow. Like he is a little cockier when he's younger. He should be. It's 1996, 2023 now. Like it's, he's, you know, older than Jim Phelps at this point. You know, he shouldn't be the same character, you know, and it's not like Bond. I feel like this character carries more and more weight with him in an interesting way. And I like that evolution of him. Yeah, I mean, McQuarrie has talked to us about always, <laughs> you know, he says that the first one is really the benchmark that they're all trying to get to still in seven when they're, thro- you know, throwing trains off of cliffs and and things. But <laughs> um, yeah, we, we've both loved the first one so much. And, and it is a great De Palma movie, too, which I would love to hear you guys thoughts on that because a lot of people dismiss like they like it as a Mission Impossible movie but kind of dismiss it as a Brian De Palma movie I mean I think it's marvelous and I feel like to me the first Mission Impossible captures exactly what Cruz's goal was in doing this franchise you know starting with just even that first setup where like we're in Kiev Emmanuel Barrett is pretending to be like a dead sex worker on the bed so they're using it to get some information out of this guy and basically what we're watching is Spycraft as theater Emilio's in one room. We see eyedroppers going into cocktails over his shoulder. The walls pull back like a curtain, and we're realizing this is how this team operates. It's spycraft through performance and trickery, even more than stunt work here. It's all about the mental games. I mean, I think in this entire movie, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think Cruz fires a gun, and I don't think correct. He, yeah, he, and he correct. doesn't yeah. kill anybody. It's mental. And and yeah. to put that in the context of the mid-90s after like all of the Rambos, all of the shooting movies, Mission Impossible was always about brains first. It's like one of the most exciting moments in Mission Impossible where like everything is resolved is about Tom Cruise putting on a pair of glasses. He puts on <laughs> a pair of glasses to say like, 
I am now videotaping you, Jim Phelps. Yeah, I'm blowing your cover. And like, he basically does the opposite of a of a nerdy girl in an 80s movie and like makes himself look like a dork. And we're like, yay, <laughs> Ethan Hunt. And that's amazing. That's amazing. Like I, I, I miss that when stuff gets more shoot, 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 shoot. You touched on this thing that we love about these movies. Our whole show is trying to celebrate filmmaking and talking to all these different artists and everybody who make all these different movies at all different levels. And so much of what Mission Impossible is, even going back to the old TV show, is it's about filmmaking in a way. Mm. Like you describing that right. opening scene and the, and them putting the, it's like they're making a movie there. You know, you see yeah. it there, and so much of the old show is also about performance. Like they're putting on these acts and they're 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 practicing how to imitate somebody and how to how to put insert themselves in a situation and then deceive people and use special effects to do it. And that's what these movies are. It's a, it's amazing that they're kind of about filmmaking. And that's something that we love about what McCory has done with the movies as well is that he puts he says this the process of making the movie goes into the movie uh, and everything that you hear McCory say in interviews over the last like 10 years eventually all the things that he says end up being lines of dialogue in these movies and, <laughs> and then you hear you know Ethan Hunt will say in the movie, oh we're working on it we're working on it. oh I'll, I'll figure it out like all these things so much of it is them learning on the fly and trying to figure out what they're doing and altering the plan and all, all it's just it it applies to how they make these movies as well it's 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 lovely Right. How am I going to get this motorcycle on this train is actually how am I going to get this motorcycle on this train? Yeah. <laughs> and trust me that it will happen. Yeah. To the De Palma aspect of the question, too, I feel like what he really does in this first film is create this tension and suspense and constant twists. You know, it's hard to remember what it was like to be in 1996. But if you see Emilio Estevez in the first scene of a film, and then in the second scene or third scene, he gets killed. You're like, whoa, whoa. Like you are constantly pulling the rug out from the audience at every given point. And I feel like De Palma is creating these stunts that are not stunts by just the camera angles, the way that he is getting in Phelps' face when they're in the aquarium restaurant, you know, which is something that I know Tom Cruise wanted to add because he felt like there wasn't a big enough set piece there and they kind of agreed to do this big aquarium scene. But the way that he shoots that scene, yes, the restaurant explodes, but leading up to it, you're on the edge of your seat. And I feel like that he does so much with like twisting that screw. And I feel like when you see Mission Impossible 7, Dead Reckoning, the end train sequence is phenomenal, but it is action, right? Like, and De Palma is able to do that with dialogue. And I feel like Macquarie captured an element of that in the beautiful opening scene of uh, Dead Reckoning on the sub. Like, and it's even shot like De Palma, you know, those close angles and, uh, and that slanted shot. Like, I just feel like when I watched Mission Impossible 1, what I missed was what Amy's saying, the spy craft element of it. And then really, like, you'd break a sweat, like a bead of sweat would pop off your head. And I feel like it's perfectly orchestrated in that uh, hanging over the CIA Langley. That's a perfect scene. It's not, yes, it's a stunt, but it's not really even a stunt. It's like, it's just tension. Well, yeah, because like so many Brian De Palma movies are basically at its core, is this woman that I'm attracted to lying to me? Like, that's the tone that he, like, loves to hit so much. <laughs> Am I being lied to by the people around me? And that emotional paranoia that I think works so well with Emmanuel Barrett in this movie. Sometimes I go back and forth. and like, do I even believe that this lady is, like, married to John Voight? 
I mean, they ha- he has that little throwaway line at the end where he like refers to her as goods. He's like, well, now they've oh. tasted the goods. I'm like, oh, it's oh, I don't like this marriage and I don't believe it at all. But like when she bats her big old eyes at anybody, I would believe whatever she told me too, even if it was about my dog going to the farm. That level of suspense is something that I think everybody kind of tries to do. But there, there's something about the level of sustained suspense of that first one and the set pieces that are literally, like you're saying, just just rigged to get the most out of you and to get you on the edge of your seat. And we always talk about how the Langley sequence is nine minutes of silence. Wow. That's like a yeah, it's a it's an it's such a bold artistic statement that first movie. Yeah. And to have that such a bold artistic statement turn into one of the most kind of commercially and artistically satisfying franchises ever is really interesting. And and that's why we are so drawn to this series is because of that expert level of craft and artistry and willingness to kind of push into to new and different areas that, that the, the series has maintained and totally, you're right, developed in that first movie wholeheartedly. You know, that baton has been passed very elegantly throughout the rest of the series, but but it was so much of it was established in that first movie. Yeah. And it's so good at even just like outlining for us in the audience what we need to be aware of. It's like temperature, things touching the floor and yep. sound. And you are just like with it. it. Somehow they get through that exposition without boring you about what you need to know to be tense in that scene. And then they just make it come to life. Whereas I have to say, and I understand if you don't want to like go down this road with me. I thought that the exposition scenes in the new Mission Impossible were some of the worst I've ever seen in my life because it was just like three to seven people in a room not even having a conversation with each other. They're like trading off lines like it's a musical number. Like, then you got to do this. Then you got to do this. Then you got to do this. Jazz hands. <laughs> I I will jump in front of this bullet and say I disagree with that. Um, but where I think the franchise thrives and what i really loved in seven is i did feel like they went back to these moments of spycraft and intrigue one of the things i didn't realize when i watched seven was that scene with Haley atwell where they're picking each other's pockets like for lack of a uh, better description the magic scene the 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 sleight of yeah. hand scene Cl- close-up magic Close up yeah, magic. Which I'm he like, does here too, even with the CD. He's like, well, yeah. and I was like, oh my gosh, it's a callback to this thing, this character that we've established that's there. And that scene, those two scenes, if you look at them together, they're great scenes because it is about the mental game, right? It is about like trying to get up on each other. And it's not like trading kicks to the face. And I feel like, if anything, I think the seven kind of started to lean a little bit more into spycraft and maybe what you're feeling, Amy, is like those claustrophobic scene where I, I didn't find them claustrophobic, but that, 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 that office scene where they're all in there in the IMF where everyone's on typewriters down below uh, Carrie Elways. And it is a big discussion, but I also feel like maybe we've gotten so far away from it that it feels like, oh, I'm not used to this anymore because I do think four, five and six lacked a lot of that. Like they just kind of, you're just on this mission. I do think that I feel like they were not quite positive that the audience would fully understand what this villain was. Cause this villain is a hard to understand villain. It's AI, but AI is also using people that aren't robots, but it is AI, but AI has got a thing. And it's interesting that Tom Cruise is doing a movie about AI in a time where that's one of the things that we're striking against. Um, but it's a complicated villain 
unlike any other villain they've had. And I think that they went maybe a step in the side of, let me make sure you understand what it is. It's not him. It's not my favorite answer to the New York Times crossword, Isai Morales. It is this other larger thing. And they had to keep on, I think, nailing that. And I felt like they did it a lot. I felt like I was on board with it, but I, maybe that was just preventative maintenance of of trying to make sure that people felt they understood what the bad guy was. There's a lot to keep track in this movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, two, the two keys and uh, who's <laughs> on what side and... And what, why what are they the on entity? that side? Yeah, yeah what is it's, the, it's a lot. Yeah, it's well, a lot. And McCory, I know, is you know, he's he talks about exposition a lot. I mean, he's, that's the great thing about McCory is he does all these interviews. Obviously, we've had him on the show so many times, and it's amazing to hear him be so open about his process. And he he talks a lot about exposition and how it's so hard to get exposition to come across. And he always uh, he's what does he say? Exposition is the death of emotion. And I think he he's been trying to get exposition that is actually emotional, and you really see it in this movie more than the previous missions because even the mission briefing itself when ethan is getting his mission you know and he gets the little tape recorder and listens that's the first time the mission briefing itself is actually emotional because it's talking about things from his past and and things like that and then and then in the case of the scene we're talking about here with the intelligence community they're all sitting there all all you know laying out the the entity the information about the entity the approach that they found that made them feel like the scene worked was they all tell it like it's a ghost story and so there's this sort of eerie feeling to them laying out all this information. So it's them. And I think McCory is determined to try to get emotion into these exposition scenes. Whether or not it works for you, I don't know. I, I, th- I thought it was really cool and I thought it worked really well. And also the scene's hilarious too when they start, you know, because they try to make these movies yes. inclusive for any person walking off the street who's never seen a Mission Impossible movie, which is a really hard thing to pull off. But they, I think they pulled it off because I, I went and saw it with somebody who didn't really see these movies and he just loved it. And they do that scene where they explain what the IMF is. And it's so funny when everyone in the intelligence community is explaining it to Carrie Elvis. You know, they, they leave a message for the guy. And uh, yeah, he whether he chooses to do it or not, it's so funny. And it speaks to like the franchise's ability to basically have an absurd concept at its core <laughs> and yeah. and poke fun at it without deflating what it is. It doesn't become like a Mel Brooks movie. And I think, uh, you know, going back to the first movie and talking about silence. When he is doing that work, the exposition is done alone in a hotel room or a a safe house on a computer. And it's there's so much of that movie. And I think the reason why I didn't like it originally was I felt like he was working by himself. I realized actually he's not in my mind. My my ding was it's a Tom Cruise movie, not an ensemble movie. I think the movies have become more ensemble, but I think the ensemble is actually layered in in a very interesting way because they, he is always working with somebody. It's just not like a team doing a mission. It's not Ocean's Eleven. It's like he's building a team. Sometimes he'll use this part of the team. He'll use that part of the team. But that moment where he's researching Job 314 versus Job 314, it's another long, silent scene of like typing on computers, looking at like the most boring version of the internet you could possibly imagine, right? Like it, it like, and I think they probably even dressed it up at that point to make it look more exciting. Wait, you know? I just love the idea that the entire internet in 1996 only has 126 groups talking about the Bible. That's amazing. I think like Facebook probably beats that every single minute. <laughs> but that was, I mean, I love that idea of him figuring stuff out. I think that that's the other thing where they 
do something really smart is like when he figures out that Phelps is lying. When Phelps comes back, like twist. Oh, oh it's so I love well. That it's one of my favorite sequences of anything ever. Talk it's to me about it. Yeah. Thing. I mean, it's just, I mean, that, I think that sequence is probably what confused people at the time and maybe still, because I, I feel like this movie, the, the first Mission Impossible movie has a reputation of being confusing and it still holds to this day, which to, to us is kind of ludicrous because when you watch all these movies, I think the first movie actually makes the most sense of any of the movies in the series. All the other ones have like things you kind of have to like throw out the window and be like, oh, yes. okay, yeah, I'll go with it. But the first one is actually like a really tight script and it works really well. Like it's amazing. And that sequence where, yeah, Ethan is putting it together in his mind what actually happened while Phelps is lying to him. And not only that, we not only see the truth, we also see him trying to figure out whether or not Claire did it. So you yes. see two ver- two versions of Hannah in the car being blown up. You see Claire blowing it up, and he and then he sort of shakes it off and goes, "Oh, maybe it could have been. Uh, he could have had some help that whatever he could have done himself." And then and then you see Phelps push the button when he's talking about Kittredge. I can understand how maybe that would be confusing at the time, but I just think it's amazing. But that's De Palma to me. Yeah, that's a follow up to a sequence, a very similar sequence at the end of Body Double as well where he's being he's having the the whole thing laid out and then you're seeing what actually happened right. with the guy in the which again involves a mask a very realistic mask that fools somebody into thinking something else but yeah i mean that you're right that is 100% de palma yeah it's a filmmaker trusting that his audience will understand visual storytelling and be able yes. to like layer what they're seeing with layer what they're hearing which is, and the answer I guess, is no. Tricky. No. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, because it's it's hard. It's hard for you to go. Oh, the knife he sees in Langley. He's tying that to the knife from the beginning. You know, it does reward people paying attention. I agree with you. I think if you dangled me over a pit of sharks and said you have to accurately summarize the plots of every single Mission Impossible movie. I couldn't do it. I think the only one I could do is this one. I think I could tell you what happens in Mission Impossible 1. But if you ask me to remember how any of the set pieces and like most of the other Mission Impossibles fit together, I could not tell you. I could do three. Well, I could do three. I could yeah, do three. Well, three is my but, other favorite one, actually. McCory understands that, though, too. I mean, he talks about how nobody knows even what the titles of these movies are. They know the one where he's on the building. They know the one right. where he's on the, the airplane. And I think that's another like master stroke. Episodes. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we need to ask Paul why he's so down on Ghost Protocol. Because that's really disturbing to me. Okay. <laughs> I watched every Mission Impossible within, I will say, 14 days. Maybe, give or take, maybe a little less. There's something about Ghost Protocol to me when I was watching it that just felt like Huh, there's some great set pieces, some great characters, but it felt a little wishy-washy in a way. Like it felt like there was a few different tacks of where they were going to go and what they were going to do and you know, you have this great opening. Everything after the Burj Khalifa for me goes downhill. And and I feel like the end in the parking lot, I'm like, "Okay, it's fine." It just like it feels like you're building, you're ramping up, and I just felt like that third act. Give me everything up into that third act, and I'm on board. It's like I even I'll even take the sandstorm. I like the sandstorm. I, I forgot about that. But I feel like after that, it's like it feels like it's racing towards an ending. And I heard Macquarie talk about this idea too. Like there's a a tendency in the Mission Impossible movies to save or to do their best thing in the middle, and and then you start to go downhill. And I do feel like that movie it peaks in the middle. 
And then you're left with this, you go out on this, oh, we're trying to grab a suitcase in a parking lot and it's going down. And it just felt to me like it didn't stick the landing. You know, even give me Philip Seymour Hoffman getting run over by a car, like boom, oh, whoa. And that was a great final confrontation scene, but I'm there. You know, this is the train. It's great. Uh, Then we talk about, you know, the last, I mean, all the Macquarie ones, I think, end pretty spectacularly. Like it's... um, it just felt muddled to me. And if you guys don't feel that, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's like, I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I can convince you. I will say this. I'm going to throw this out. I don't think Please. they knew what they wanted to do with the Paula Patton character. And I don't think mm-hmm. they made a decision about it. And I think you can't figure out why she's there. Like, is she sort of a potential flirty love interest? Is it like really platonic? Like, I, I feel like that's a little bit meh. In the film? You know, it's what, and the whole movie is about this young actor trying to take Ethan's spot, uh, or a young agent trying to take his spot. And at time and time again, he's like, no, I'm better than you. Like, Ethan Hunt is saying that, you know? This is like Tom Cruise being given a swan song and fighting out of it. That's what I kind of feel like the movie feels like. So it's it's more of like a... Uh, like a treaty on like, I belong here, keep me here. And it's less about like a great mission impossible. I feel like he's like holding on very tightly. And it, look, I'm glad that he did because what we got after it was right. He's hundred percent right. But that to me feels like there, the movie feels like it's wrestling with this, this other thing underneath it. It just feels like there's another thing underneath it that I can't quite get. That's making it a little less confident than the other ones. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, this was obviously a real pain in the ass movie to make, but they all are. So I'm right. not really sure that would. Yes. But the other thing is, like, how do you top the Burge? Like, you can't. There, if you put the beginning of Rogue Nation where he's hanging on the side, of the side of the plane, maybe that would have topped it in the course of one movie. But there is just nowhere to go but down after that. But I would argue that the car park sequence is really incredible in a really specifically Brad Bird like kind of Rube Goldberg of style. Incredibles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like that there's some real, you know, cleverness to that. And also Benji has his great arc that is fulfilled in the kind of satellite 100%. station or whatever where he like he owns up to being a field agent and saving Paula Patton and yeah, I think there's a lot of fun stuff in that third act. The the car with the map on the screen and all that stuff is is Really great, but maybe it's a weak villain. Well, he's Swedish Special Forces, Paul. Isn't that intimidating <laughs> enough for you? <laughs> I mean, I will say this: like, I do think that there is a shift for sure in this Ethan. I think of I think of the Mission Impossible Four as the beginning of New Ethan, where like what we talk about afterwards is what Tom Cruise did. Yeah, like the stunts he did, and not like the story about Ethan Hunt, not like the plot. Because I feel like Mission Impossible One is. Stellar. Mission Impossible 2, Ethan Hunt is like Lothario cheeseball. Mission Impossible 3, he's like emotional family guy. Mission Impossible 4, he doesn't talk. Like, he almost doesn't talk at all for the first half hour. It's like a silent movie. He's kind of like, I think yeah. of him in, in this movie as like Wiley Coyote, you know, trying to figure <laughs> out how to get out of scenarios, it, which is probably also me like laying or over the Brad Bird live action of it all. But I think think that that speaks to an idea of this movie isn't sure if people still love Tom Cruise the human so do they love Tom Cruise the performer doing these things without talking about his feelings mm. to, to me like Ghost Protocol and what you just talked about where he's he's kind of a, it's almost a silent movie performance 
that's where these movies have gone. Like Ghost Protocol has totally put the franchise on its track where it is now. And it's like to me, it's where it's where Tom Cruise became Buster Keaton. It's like it's it's like where he he's like you know what I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna distill because he's he's so you know they're so interested in, in entertaining everybody in the whole world. So they're trying to figure out how do we do visual storytelling, less dialogue. How can we do this in a gesture? Can I do this in a facial reaction? Right. So there's so much more of that in all of his movies since then, and in particular the Mission Impossible movies. Not only and that that doesn't just apply to it, it applies to the comedy as well. Like I think the comedy of the series has really followed the lead of Ghost Protocol. None of them yes. have, have, I think, reached that same level that Brad Bird got the tone in, in Ghost no, Protocol. No, the end, the, the best, the best end line. I mean, and again, my issue with four is just that it dropped lower than I thought because other ones succeeded. I still really like it and I feel like he's nailed a lot of great stuff, but that comedy in there is great. I mean, it's across so the whole- good. And the music, like that opening sequence is fun. Brad Bird does- I don't want to like really be shitting on Brad Bird because I don't think it, I have nothing wrong with the way it's shot or anything like that. It's just, it looks beautiful. It just, I do feel like every director brings a piece and I almost feel like Macquarie has been able to take the best of all those pieces because this last Dead Reckoning had more jokes than I remember any of the yeah. Macquaries had. Yeah. Yeah. The tone, it feels more like, yeah, like almost like it's like the Roger Moore, James Bond of the series. Yeah. Almost, like the, well, look, the, you got a submarine. You like got a spy who loved me. Almost. You got you got a submarine in this one. I, from what I understand, and everybody's teasing it, there's going to be snow in the second one. So that's that's right. Roger Moore, James Bond, 100 percent. Yeah. But it's like it's the character of Ethan Hunt now and putting him in these situations where he's a reluctant hero now. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to go out on the side of the Burge when, when they start. So he's, right. he's coming up with he's coming up with every possible, anything. He's like throwing out every other possible thing they can do instead of having him go out on the side of the Burge. Whereas you just go back to the previous one in three, immediately he jumps to, oh, I'm going to go swing, swing off the side of this building. And he's, he's just in determined Tom Cruise mode. And he starts drawing pictures on the side. And they're all like, Ethan, Ethan, no, you shouldn't do that. And he's like, no, no, this is the only way we're going to do it. Swing off the side of the building in Shanghai and this is what we have to do. Like in all the previous movies, Ethan's just like, I'm going to do it. This is the crazy thing. And I'm just going to go do it. That's what has to be done. Whereas from ghost protocol on now it becomes, Oh wait, wait, what, what, what do I have to do? Are you, are you serious? And it's like, now we've found this humanity in Ethan in him being more like John McClane or more like Indiana Jones, where he's like, I I don't, I I don't, I, what I have to do. What? I totally agree with the Indiana Jones and and McClane too. It's like, there's something fun and that's where some of the biggest laughs come yeah. From him being a surprised that he was able to do it. Like, and I think he yeah. is a team leader. So he has to be like, okay, I'm going to try this. But you see that. And I think that one of the things that's so great, and going back to Mission Impossible One, like he got that wind machine to kind of fuck up his face. So it's like, whoa, right. you know, it's like, and you don't see action stars like that. We don't see rippling of face. And and I know he's actually doing it, but he isn't trying to look pretty doing it. Like, and I feel yeah. like that's actually probably A, because he probably can't <laughs> like, you know, like he's thinking about a million things in there and he's really doing these things. Yeah. You can't look cool. You have to just do it and yeah. be confident in your training. That's what I like so much about the train scene in Mission Impossible one is like how many scenes have we seen of people fighting on top of a train, right? Like bazillions in our entire lives. But this is the train scene where this I feel summer. like you see the actual speed of the train. You actually feel how fast a train is. Cause a lot of times like, I'm just standing up and throwing punches on a train. And like, you don't even get the idea of the velocity that you're feeling. And to see Ethan Hunt use the speed of the train to kind of fly a little bit around on purpose on like the roof of it. It feels realer than the other ones do. Even Dead Reckoning Part 1, when they are really, really on a 
top of a train. I mean, that is also great. I'm kind of more comparing it to like the stupid train movies, you know? Yes, yes. Like, okay, yeah, okay. I everything know, I know, else. Yes. Yeah. We don't need to we yeah. don't need to name names, but yes, we know the stupid yeah. train movies. But, but even, even even what I do like about like the new train in Dead Reckoning Part One. Oh god, I can't believe I actually I never I haven't actually even said the title Dead Reckoning Part One ever. So thank you for making me do that. Uh, is like when he's kind of sliding when the I don't want to give away too much for people who haven't seen it yet, but there's parts of that movie where he's dealing with the train on the inside and it looks like he's slipping and sliding and falling into things. And yeah. that looks so natural. And I adore that. I'd rather see that than like a million Liam Neeson just being like, I got this, bro. Yeah, Look right. at me do it perfectly. And you're like, whatever, you did not. What I believe that everything is a stepping stone in a weird way. Because two, I rewatched two. It's a weird movie. It's it's not bad, right? It's just like... It- it's bad. I mean, it's it's different. <laughs> I was like, it's John Woo doing James Bond, not John Woo doing Mission Impossible. That's what I feel like when I watch that movie. It's like, he's making a James Bond movie. Ethan Hunt's acting like James Bond. The the stunts, the sequences feel like James Bond. They're in a lair. They end up in this thing. You know, it's like, and what three does is I think it gives him humanity by connecting him to Carrie Russell, not his wife, who, we, yes, we get that he loves his wife. And that's a great relationship that some people say is the worst relationship that he has. But you see like how he understands, like he's retired at that point. So, which is hilarious to think, uh, but he's, you know, he's retired <laughs> and he's training and you see him like have that emotion. And I think that that, that leaks into, I'm nervous to do this sort of stuff. And then it kind of grows and grows and grows. And now we're seeing him now really in the Jim Phelps role you know, being an, a leader in a field agent, like at seven, I mean, I guess he's been different points. It's so hard because it doesn't ever feel like mission, like the, the IMF is really all together. Like it always feels like he's outside of it. The first movie he's running from IMF. The second movie he's working for IMF. I wish they could have kept Anthony Hopkins, although it makes no sense. He still might be working at the IMF. Yeah, you know, he, I mean, he should be mission commander Swanbeck. We love I mean, it's One basically just like, in an abusive relationship where we only see half the story, I feel like his relationship with the IMF, he's always leaving it. He's always getting kicked out. They never believe him. And we never see when he comes back or why, I feel like. I feel like I never quite understand. He's like, well, maybe the fifth time I rejoined the IMF will be better than the last time they accused me of cheating and lying on them. <laughs> I love J.J. Abrams, and I will say... <laughs> shittiest ending of any Mission Impossible is three when they just kind of go off like almost like a fist pump in the air. Like it's almost like the end of Breakfast like Club. Smokey like and the Bandit. Yeah. yeah. It's like, hey, we're going off <laughs> arm in arm. She's in the IMF like building. I'm like, what is happening? I love it. But that ending is so <laughs> bonkers. <laughs> it's, but it's like, but at the same time, it makes you feel good. And I feel like I've never left these movies feeling like they didn't deliver a hundred percent. I think that everyone is building on others, which is why I will say, and I've told this uh, to Drew and Amy uh, a bunch, uh, Charles, I'll tell you now, five is really to me like the gold standard of, of this franchise. And I fight between five and one a lot because I feel like five does everything really, really well. I feel like they, like it's, it's everything is cooked to the right degree at that point. And I feel like you got Spycraft, you have real stunts, you have a great character, it's a beautiful movie, you have these amazing set pieces that aren't just, like, the opera set piece is gorgeous, and that's not like a stunt. It is, but it's not, like, it's it's a set piece. It's a real set piece. And I love Five because of that, because I feel like it it kind of blends it all. It feels to me like this is Macquarie on the sidelines for Four, going like, let me in there, let me in there. I, I'm gonna 
but I can get this. And then it feels like that's the one that kind of congeals everything really, really nicely. All of the movies before Fallout had that same kind of problem where it's like the midpoint set piece was kind of right. the peak of the movie. And then the, the climax never quite lived up to whatever that set piece was in the middle of the movie. Maybe John Woo's doesn't, is, maybe doesn't apply because that, that climax is maybe more yeah. epic than the middle set piece. But other than that, I mean, you think about Langley, you think about, which is, you know, the, the most iconic sequence still parodied to this day in movies. You've got the Vatican yeah. sequence in three, which is my, one of my favorite sequences in the whole so series. Great. So incredible. You've got Dubai, as we already talked about, and Ghost Protocol. And you've got the opera or the motorcycles. Pick whichever one you want from the middle of Rogue Nation. Probably the other problem at that point also was like, oh, the villains have kind of always been lackluster in these movies. And then with Fallout, McCory, and now also with Dead Reckoning Part 1, finally seemingly solved that with the helicopters in yes. Fallout and then, then the train sequence in Dead Reckoning Part 1. It was like he was answered our prayers and what we wanted to get like a epic climax out of one of these movies that really is the sequence in the movie. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious how you feel about that because I've... I felt underwhelmed by Rogue Nation when I first saw it, and now I've come around and I totally see the more personal, small ending that they did for that movie really suits the movie. But to me, it could never be my favorite because that ending is ultimately a little bit a little bit underwhelming, even though it's a nice character right, moment of him getting him back in the box. I think five and six to me feel like one movie a lot of the times just because of the way that they share so much DNA across the board, you know, the villains and everything like that. I really love the story that they tell together as one it feels like you know it's the first time the mission impossible is really connecting between one and two you're right i was like oh this is the end you know when i was rewatching it like and he just falls into a box you know but what i loved about that was we're going back to the idea of like the spycraft world of it it's not about like let's blow them off the top of the building let's you know shoot them out of the sky no they use their smarts they actually had a, an interesting plan like it's not happenstance like it wasn't like oh he ran out of breath or like they they corralled him into something and i agree it's not like the helicopter it's you know it's it's not like the train sequence i think it's fulfilling because it's like the team gets to get, like they all work together. Sides have been switching the entire time and they get him. And to see that villain, and you very rarely get to see a bad guy caught and pissed, right? Like you don't see, like Alan Rickman isn't caught. He dies in Die Hard. You know, James Bond villains die. And to see him in that glass box and the way, the acting that he does, I think is great. Like just say, there's something fulfilling about that. For sure. And it's also the emotional payoff of the kind of buddy movie that Five really is yes. with Simon Pegg and They all Ethan. work together. They did they, Yeah, they, they did work mission. together. Yeah, and they get back at this guy who really fucked with Simon Pegg's character in a really big way and is such a has become such a beloved, you know, figure in the franchise yeah. that it works. I'm not crazy about Five because I think the plotting is the hardest okay. to follow. What that drive does and are they thieves or are they terrorists or what? what is going yeah, on? That, but that world, whatever it is, the, what are they called? The, the, syndic the, uh, the syndicate. syndicate yeah. Yes. <laughs> Where they're like, they have Which, kind of the, the infrastructure of the IMF, but they're a rogue organization. I mean, it's just very hard to kind of follow, but I think six, six is like the, the rewrite of five where they just, every problem is gone and it just kicks ass from beginning six. to end. I do think I feel like five and six are great. Like, I hope my hope for five and six is my hope for Dead Reckoning one and two. Right. Because absolutely, you know, yeah. that's and I feel like they what they've just done 
with Dead Reckoning has said, it's not over. I mean, six is just, six is the one that like I brought my dad to go see. I was like, you're, there's no doubt you're not going <laughs> to like this movie. And, and that yeah. is the, that is the entry movie that I will show to most people. It'd be like, if they've not seen it, I'm like, start at six because you will, it will guarantee you some like entry point that you will like, and we can go back and finesse. And that's for, you know, like I said, for people who are not in the know, my wife saw Dead Reckoning Part One and loved it. Never saw really any of the other ones, you know. And it's like I do think that, to your point, all of them work as entry point movies. Amy, where do you fall? Like, what? Do you, like, I, I want to see what Amy like. So you're number one, no sway. Number one and number three are your top two. Yeah, number one and number three are my top two. I really stand out for number three just because I think it has the best villain in Philip Seymour Hoffman. I love number and three. And I think the scene with Carrie Russell that we're talking about on the plane is probably the most tense scene of any of the movies. That one next to the drop, like just just emotionally, just like gripping, watching the look in his eyes as he is making promises to Carrie Russell that you're not sure he's going to be able to keep. Everything about that just absolutely guts me. And I really just hate Philip Seymour Hoffman's villain by the end of it in a way that feels so pure and firebred that I'm much more emotionally invested in that one than any of the other ones, except for one. And I just think one has like a complete beautiful artistic purity of vision. I just love one. I think like if they'd only ever even made one, we could have stopped at one and been like, well, that was one of the greatest action films ever made, to be honest. What's the ding on three? Because a lot of people who are the biggest fans dislike, I mean, two, we put two off to the side. Two is like, Whatever it's it's pushed on the plate of Mission Impossible. We're not even going to deal two with that. Two is the last. Okay, are we all I in mean, agreement yeah. that two is the worst one? It, it is yes. the worst. But I want. I, I almost want to give a quick defense of two because I think there are some great things into. Yes. That that it, it does does the whole movie cohere? No. But there's some John Woo touches that come through that are great. There's some moments in it that are really spectacular, like the knife in the eye moment in the climax where the knife is right in Tom Cruise's actual eye, actual knife, mm-hmm. tickling his eyelashes. <laughs> it's so amazing. That and that, you know, there are certain choices in two that like, I mean, obviously like the, the John Woo of it make, makes it very emotional, but that, that which is kind of fun to see John Woo do that, but in the middle of the movie, Drew's going to hate me for bringing this up. I always bring it up. There's a, there's a mouse trap in the middle of two, which is one of the funnest parts of the Mission Impossible movies. When they when they fool someone into thinking they're in a different scenario, it's like a, a con artist movie. Yeah, basically. And there's a really fun mouse trap in the middle of two that sadly gets undermined by some too complicated plotting. But it's like they basically they convince is it uh, Brendan Gleeson I think to yes. that, that, that he's I dying love of this. a of, yes. it's that him he's desi- dying of a disease and so they have him in a hospital bed he has this whatever chimera whatever the thing is called right and they they make him think that he's dying so they can get information out of him and it's like that's a really awesome mission impossible sequence unfortunately because like the, the plot is too complicated the first time you watch it you're like wait what is going on right now but when i rewatch it i can appreciate that i like that, that. trap sequence more yeah and that's the kind of thing I love to see in these Mission Impossible movies. And also just, you know, John Woo has some amazing shots. The motorcycle joust is totally ludicrous, but a lot of fun. Who is responsible for making Tom Cruise say the line, damn, you're beautiful, which just gives me that creep in the way where like 
this is a completely made up story, but it's like as though my parents had divorced and I caught my dad at a cocktail bar at a shitty hotel trying to pick up a woman. That's how I feel when I hear Tom Cruise say, damn, you're beautiful in Mission Impossible 2. Let me ask this. Would it have worked if it was Chow Yun-Fat and it was subtitled? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I just... Yes. Yes. I want to take over the uh, Y3 is not very okay. good mantle. Okay. We love Dan <laughs> Mendel. The movie is not his best shot work. Way too many close-ups. I agree. It feels like TV. I mean, it feels like an episode of Alias from the beginning in terms of that kind of in-media res opening yes. and then we flash back. I don't think that Hoffman, he, he's a wonderful performer and he's wonderful in the movie. I don't think the character is that great. I don't think he's particularly menacing. He's a middleman. He's not really, you know, the real villain is uh, Musgrave. Yeah. 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 But his confidence in his eyes during the airplane drop, you're like, whatever. I believe Mission Impossible 3 could be viewed as one of the worst films, if not for Philip Seymour Hoffman, because I'm engaged by him that I'm not asking those questions. And I feel like, if it was a mediocre actor, yeah, it's like sure. Goldfinger. It's like Goldfinger he, he is elevates he a, the movie. Yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman elevates the movie to a whole other level. I completely agree. He's amazing. To me, when you watch, whenever I watch the movie now, the opening sequence doesn't really make any sense when I watch it now. No, because you watch it in the context of the full story, knowing the full story, you're like, wait, why? Why are they? It doesn't even make sense. What their what is their goal when they're doing this? It doesn't make a lick of sense at all. No, and I feel like they kind of waste him in the finale. Like I've, I'm really underwhelmed by the finale of three. The car but I, hit. But the thing I, I will go to bat for three forever is the Vatican sequence, which I think is you could argue like the bet, what like maybe the best Mission Impossible sequence. It is. With the exception, and we may can we can make a debate about Maggie Q, but and Simon Pegg, the worst Mission Impossible team. It's like the team is very generic. It's like they don't they don't pop to me as much as I want them to pop. You know, and we and love I, Maggie Q. Maggie yeah, great. Maggie Q. Would have loved yeah. to see more of her. Look, she could come back, right? What's fun about the movies is I feel like the first movie obviously has like the Langley sequence, the set piece, and then every movie since then they've done things to kind of mess with the idea of that set piece. Like in right. two, you have uh, Ambrose, the bad guy, like starts narrating Ethan breaking in and he starts telling him Love all that. these, all, what's Ethan going to do? And then he, they're going to undermine that. And then in three, you have the, the Shanghai sequence where he goes into the building, but you don't actually get to see what he does in the building. Which yeah, is a which really people, cool concept. It's I a lot like of fun. That. Yeah. It's really cool. But the thing that I don't love about that sequence is that outside you have Jonathan Reese Myers and Maggie Q having a conversation about her cat. Yeah. Which is not well, that's, our favorite. That is, I mean, <laughs> that's look, so as JJ an alias, too. yes. Yeah. As a JJ fan <laughs> and as an alias watcher, if it's, I always say it's my favorite episode of alias. It's, it's alias with a budget. Two and three seem so much smaller than yeah. all the other yeah. ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, I will stand up for people loving their cats. <laughs> we're not saying anything about cats per se <laughs> there's a part in three just to talk about what you're with the budget side of things yeah it's interesting like and in, in what drew talking about they shot this with just extraordinarily long lenses and then you end up just isolating the characters with no background there's a part where they're on the roof it's julia and ethan it's like at the first act break and yeah. they're talking about how he's going to leave and she doesn't know like what's going on and he won't tell her he's like you just got to trust me they're on top of a roof and it's just there is nothing in the background behind them just nothing because yeah. they're shooting it with long lens and it's like they just did this i don't know in the backyard where did they shoot this i don't know like, yeah they, they could have no sense of scale at all there are stunts in it that just don't register the same way that they register in every other movie it's like yeah. he's doing things but it's like it doesn't 
elicit that same feeling. I like the Berlin sequence at the beginning as well. Yeah, there's, some, there's some fun. really fun touches in that. I mean, it's a, it's a it, great it's movie. It's not a bad like, movie. It's yeah, not a bad can, movie. Yeah, It's just Again, lower on our rankings is the thing. Well, that's you know? it. Like, And let's let's hear the rankings that you all have because I know that you've talked about them a lot on your show, but I would love to, like, let's let's go down. And well, just... this is actually an exclusive because we have not okay. integrated Ooh. Dead Reckoning <gasps> Part 1 Whoa, into our rankings all right. yet. <laughs> but we do all have right. the same rankings, I think. So. All right. Yeah, so I don't, yeah, I don't know when this is coming out, but we also just talked to Bilga on our show and we did talk about our rankings there. So whichever one of these episodes comes out first will be the reveal. All but, right. I love this. Let's so, be Bilga. I want to be Bilga. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll start from the bottom, I guess. We'll, yeah, we'll say sure. MI2 is at the bottom for us. Like I said, though, still some things I love in it. It's just yeah. doesn't quite work as well as the Wait, other. You're and, saying for us, so you guys are just in synergy, man. You're like, you're we like, have this, we, yes, we, we have, we have, we have share, we share, a, a brain, especially as we yeah. now working on the show every day of our lives, we just uh, you know have. Uh, I do want to say this as like since we're on like kind of like a couple's date of podcasts, like us <laughs> talking to y'all. Paul and I also agree like on everything, like completely. Like we're also really in sync and happy and synergized. <laughs> I love that. Like yeah, we're we're good too. We're good too. <laughs> so we good. could each we could each pilot a Jaeger in the world of Guillermo del Toro's 2013 film Pacific Rim. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. Not. Yes. Okay. Well, what is it? We're, we're drift right. compatible. We're drift compatible. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Keep going. yes. Oh my yes. gosh. At least we can plug into our own avatars and uh, and, uh, and the Navi people. All right. So, okay. Kiss Two. With, mm-hmm. And then MI3. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Rogue Nation. Mm-hmm. Then Dead Reckoning Part One. Okay. Wow. Then Ghost Protocol. Got it. And then Fallout is our number two, very close behind the original Mission Impossible is our number one, Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible. All right, so that's what one. you share. That's yes. a, all right, I love that. That's it. I love that the, the Holy Trinity is one, four, and six. Those are the three yes. kind of okay. unimpeachable. Yeah, anyway. I think I like Rogue Nation more than Drew does, even though we have it in the same rankings. I, I really do love Rogue Nation, but we also I, both I love have it too. Reckoning. I just have, it's the one that I still can't quite figure out the sort of mechanics. Well, this is interesting because I, I just pulled up my letterbox here too to look at what, after I watched them all, I did rank them. I was tracking your journey on Letterboxd, okay, by the way. So really, I, I got on Letterboxd because of you. I love Letterboxd. It's the best. Letterboxd you you is... sold me. You, when you came on the show and you told me about it, because I was like, I don't want to put reviews out there. I don't want I don't, I don't want to do ratings. Ratings in particular, I didn't want to do. Yes. I, like, I don't want to put numbers on movies. And I know how hard it is. I'm a filmmaker. I'm trying to make you know movies as well. And I don't want to I try not anybody. To, or... Yes. I try not to do it. What I love about it is... You just get to see what other people are watching. And it actually inspires yeah. me to watch other stuff. And it gets me yeah. excited to watch other stuff. And I like um, commenting on other people's reviews and saying, yes. you know, liking their stuff. It's great. You sold me on it. So thank All you right, for that. So, or, or I don't know. Sorry. No, Drew, Drew doesn't like that I'm into Letterbox now. I don't know. I, I feel like it's a major betrayal, but we'll, we'll get into wow. this. Wow. Like, well, I want to understand but, why. All right. We're divided that way, too. Paul keeps trying to get me to do Letterbox. Well, Amy, I, I believe that you got to get, yeah. I, I, I write about stuff already for a living. Just cut and paste. write about it for free. Cut and, paste. Yeah. Cut, cut and paste what you already got paid for. Cut and paste it. That's all I'm saying. I'm going to make some enemies here with my list, but I'm going to go like this. I'm going to say, I'm going to go from the top to the bottom. Wait, Six. so you're going, best, you're going best first. Best first. Or should I, or should I not? I, I'll, go, I'll go bottom first. Okay. 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 Two, three, four, seven, five, one, six. Whoa. Third to me is five. Uh, and I know oh. we talked about five. I thought Rogue Nation was going to be your number one. 
I remember my conversation with Drew, five was at my number one spot and I hadn't watched six yet. And then oh, I was like, okay, oh, so, oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. So okay. yes, six and one, I go back and forth. I could really be like Mission Possible one, one, six. I would buy that six, one. They feel very similar to me. I feel like they both right. are at the top of their game. Seven, I want to watch again. I've only seen it once. So I did okay. put it uh, in the middle of the pack. Um, so you have you have three in the same spot as us. Yeah, not bad. Not bad for... Uh, but you're like, Mission I Possible. love three. And we're, we're like, well, you know, three. But it's still in the same... Maybe but that speaks like, to how good the franchise is. Well, that's what it is. It's like, I think at the end of it, there are things I love and there are things that I think are great about these movies. What is interesting to me is to see the building blocks. And without JJ, I don't think this franchise is as good as it becomes. But I also don't think that three is as good as later Mission Impossible. So I start to judge Absolutely. it on those those things. I'm like, well, wait, is three important? So that, should that be higher? Like one, I think, is the ultimate importance, but is it the most enjoyable? I, I think I like six more than I like one from a sing in the theater standpoint, but one is more important than because it sets the tone and it's a great movie. So that's where I wrestle with, like what is important to these movies? What moves the ball forward? And then I just went with, what am I enjoying? Amy, what's your rankings? Okay, here are my rankings. And again, I'll start at the bottom like you guys. So two, five, six, seven's in the middle right now for me because I think it has the worst dialogue scenes of any of them, but it has some of the best actual action. Uh, then four, then three, then one. So I'm going to keep wow. my, I'm going to wow, keep my Wow, you're a real three day. truther. Yeah. I yeah. am a three truther. I'm not going to be shaken away from it, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm surprised by how low Fallout is. I'm curious to hear your yeah. thoughts on Fallout. Fallout is fine. I really also group like five and six together. I appreciate elements of Fallout, but honestly, it just, nothing in it like really pops to me. Nothing in it Vanessa like actually Kirby? stands above. I love Vanessa Kirby. She's fine here. I love her in general. I think she's fine here. My favorite moment and it's the worst moment of uh, Fallout is Alec Baldwin's death scene. Like, I was watching it again because it's so, like, it's so bad. I, I, I very often don't attack uh, acting choices, but that one in particular is real, like, scene-chewery. Like, I don't know why it feels like, oh, oh, go on without me. I'm okay. Did I do a good job? I don't know. <laughs> and, I feel, and, I feel wow. like, and I feel like Macquarie is doing everything not to be on his face for it. Like, because... <laughs> It's like, it's a little <laughs> over the top. All right, so I guess, the, I guess the only question left is, does Mission Impossible belong in space? So when you say in space, are you saying like we're sending it out to be saved for other civilizations to see and other planets and things? <laughs> exactly. Is this uh, one of the hundred best movies that deserves to be immortalized forever? Whew. Absolutely, because think about the listenership that we could get on other planets and other worlds. You know, we have there are so many people, so many beings that could listen to light the fuse. You know, it would really be a big coup for us. I think. So are we are we asking specifically the first movie or the franchise? I guess we have to say the first movie because it feels like that is the argument, right? That's the one that everyone can agree is at least number one or number two in this group. I I think so. Wouldn't you say, Charles? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I obviously we're a little bit. I have a poster on the wall behind me. You can't see. I have I'm one sure. right here. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, Drew's got one in his, uh, his recording uh, booth over there as well. You know, I think it's a really special movie. It's, it's really like De Palma has. I love that De Palma has come out, like you said earlier, Drew, and said that like Carlito's Way and and Mission Impossible were him 
at the top of his game. And and I think they're both that those two and Blowout are my three favorite De Palma movies. And I think he was able to put himself into a giant studio franchise starting movie that is really special. And like we talked about that nine minute silent sequence, like there's just nothing like that. I have a question for Amy because I don't know who on this podcast has read her wonderful book about Tom Cruise. It's great. But it it is also based around a conceit that he was working with all these amazing actors and then just sort of like wanted to do stunts, which is, you know, we talk about him sort of being the auteur of a lot of these later projects as well. But Amy, do you feel that the first Mission Impossible is kind of the platonic ideal of him working with that best in class filmmaker but also creating a really enriching product for mass audiences. Okay, I really do. I think it was a bold move of Tom Cruise when he's starting his career as a producer, starting his career in franchise films, honestly, because this was made at a time when he was not the franchise guy, saying, of everybody that I could work with, I'm actually going to agree to work with Brian De Palma, a guy who is coming to this with like the clout of being one of the heavyweights of the 70s. And I'm going to learn from him and we're going to be like two strong forces of will collaborating together from different viewpoints about what this type of movie should be. And I feel like that tension, that he that he chose that tension upon himself makes it really interesting. You know, I, I think like him and McCoy are much more just like in sync they're like they're like they're like all the four of us just like holding it's hands <laughs> inside you know they're giant robots like making friends and just agreeing to do the same thing all the time and i but i feel like i respect cruz the producer taking on the additional mantle of challenge me intellectually challenge me creatively brian de palma and maybe we're not like the best of friends when this process is over but i think we made something really special so we offer it now to the audience to debate and they will come at us in a very aggressive way about it maybe not being the best uh, De Palma representation, but bring it. And uh, I also think, <laughs> you know, we have to acknowledge franchises that can last for 25 years and franchises that not only last, but keep the same cast. It's it's That is yeah. a tremendous feat. Not many things do that, if, if, if any. Um, you know, you can't say James Bond. The, the character lasts, but not the actors. And I do think this is a rare, very rare thing. I mean, Fast 10, oddly, is the only other one that comes to my mind. Uh, you know, I mean, Star Wars, I guess. But it, it, but Star Wars isn't exactly the same because their cast leaves. This is really an evolution of an actor through these films as well. And I think that that's actually one of the most interesting things to look at when you talked about it earlier, that this is a movie about making movies. This is also a movie that, or a series that is about like the career of an actor. And I think going back to that analogy I said about Tom Cruise being in jail and stuff, I think you could probably draw those parallels to where he was at at certain points in his life. You know, I think Mission Impossible 3 was when he was high on love with Katie. And I think that, that comes through in a story that he wanted to tell. And so there's a lot of interesting things, I think, that parallel Tom Cruise as an actor and a performer across the series too, which is really cool. Yeah, I mean, he's just as important a filmmaking force as anybody else in these things. And it's really been fascinating to see him take on different roles and take on different ownership. And what's going to be fascinating about Aid is, you know, if it is the last one, what kind? what is the last kind of statement that he wants to make with these oh, movies? Don't say it. Uh, oh, wait, but now I like the idea of like rereading too as his like, 
argument against everybody who said that he wasn't sexy enough and eyes wide shut being like, I'll show you. I'm going to slow motion tango. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love it. Um, I just want to make sure that people know that you've not only covered Mission Impossible on Light the Fuse, but you've also had some amazing uh, sidetrack episodes where you will go off and talk about uh, Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick. And I just think that those are equally uh, enjoyable episodes. And if you really just want to get into the Paramount Tom Cruise uh, world, you guys got it covered 100%. <laughs> and the the show is... We, we, and in our old show, we also did John Wick as well, which is still oh, available, right. still around. And I will say the best thing about your website is that it is broken up by movies. So you can really, if you're in watching a film, you can really go on a deep dive Right afterwards, or, can, or yeah. uh, roll in the movie yeah. if you want to just see job, all the job all positions. Yeah, you yeah. can search by cinematographer or production designer and stuff like that. We've got different ways of looking through all our different uh, episodes. We've done a lot. <laughs> if I could put on my like nerdy hat as like a film critic, researcher, person who's really interested in history, his, oh my god, a person who knows how to pronounce the word history, <laughs> it's just a beautiful service that you guys have done for everybody researching this movie in the future researching this franchise like i hope you understand that you have created honestly a magnificent work of scholarship like Truly. If, ah. if if every movie had even one tenth of this like devotion to understanding like craft and the people who go into like making a film and how a movie gets put together we would all be so much smarter in the universe so thank you for making us oh my smarter. god well, i yeah, think that a, a scholarly text probably has fewer references to bruce willis's penis and <laughs> color of night <laughs> oh you'd be surprised but yeah <laughs> Yeah, but so I do. anytime anybody who's worked on Color of Night, which we've had a few over the years, uh, Drew asks them about Bruce Willis's penis. So um, rest assured, if you want to dig into our back catalog, you'll yeah. find that in there. <laughs> Guys, what a pleasure. And maybe one day Amy will grace you with a presence. <laughs> yeah, Amy, wait, can we do have a timetable for that? What do we, what do we yeah, got? Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is a breakthrough. No, for so long. I don't know how to say yes. How do I, how do I... How you don't do know I how to form the words. Please. How will yeah. we ever have a running joke if I finally yeah. go on your podcast? <laughs> oh, Paul. Boy, was it wonderful to have a team of real squad for a minute. Drew yes. and Charles here. Now we're back to being only children again. Only I children know. together in a podcast universe. <laughs> well, hopefully <laughs> you will join them one time on Light the Fuse. Like I join them. Um, I love their podcast. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. And now to kind of move forward, there's an interesting connection between this film and the next film. I don't want to reveal it just yet. I think we'll save it for next week. But it might surprise you about a very interesting similarity between the lead of this movie, and the subject of our next film. I will just leave those dots there, like little blood spatters connecting Mission Impossible to but da -da 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 Mary Heron's 2000 film, American Psycho, starring Christian Bale. Oh, what a movie. And oh, let's listen to a little bit of that trailer right now. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. If you stay, something bad will happen. Sabrina, why don't you dance a little? Christy, get down on your knees. Can we go now? We're not through yet. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane?
You can get American Psycho wherever you stream your films. It's currently streaming on Peacock. And I can't wait to get into this film. It's a film I haven't watched in years. Um, but it's a film that's been memed to death. So I can't wait to kind of look past the meme, look past the gifts, and see what really is there. And is it worth celebrating as much as the internet has celebrated it? Well, Paul, I've got some roasted squab for you on a nice bed of mint sorbet, and I am ready for action. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richman, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.